welcome to The Key. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed and host of our weekly news and analysis podcast. This week's episode digs into what could end up being one of the most significant pieces of federal higher education policymaking in many years, the Build Back Better Act, which would carry out elements of President Biden's ambitious domestic policy agenda. Within higher education, that means his promise to make community college tuition free, significantly expand funding for Pell Grants, and create for the first time a fund that would give colleges incentives for retaining their students and ensuring that they graduate. It would also reshape the relationship between federal and state governments through a partnership that would provide a ton of federal money, but require a lot from state governments in return. Joining me today are guests who come at this sprawling legislation from a range of angles. For the policy wonk and consumer protection perspective, we'll hear from Michelle Streeter, Associate Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Institute for College Access and Success. Jihang Lee, Senior Vice President and incoming President of the Association of Community College Trustees, will provide an institutional voice. And lastly, Will Doyle, a higher ed researcher at Vanderbilt University, will discuss his analysis of how the tuition-free community college proposal could affect students, states, and institutions. First, though, a word from D2L for making this week's episode possible. This episode of The Key is sponsored by D2L Brightspace, the LMS partner for top institutions around the world. D2L is a global leader with a cloud-based platform that is easy, flexible, and smart. See how you can level up your LMS at www.d2l.com. Now on to my conversation with Michelle Streeter of Tikus. Uh, Michelle, welcome to The Key, and thanks for being here. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, um, this House legislation, uh, really interesting and important and potentially, obviously. Um, tell me from your perspective and Tikus's perspective, what are the most important and, and notable elements of this legislation and how it would carry out and in some ways sort of not fully carry out the original Biden vision? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, first of all, I'd like to say this proposal is broadly, without getting into the details, um, it's a recognition, I think, of the need for a comprehensive approach to addressing not just college affordability, not just college access, um, but really moving the needle on college completion. So we see an explicit focus, um, more so than really we have before from the federal level, on really doing what the research demonstrates will be effective in helping to close the racial and economic equity gaps that we see persist in college completion rates. So we in the field, we always talk a lot about uh, the many benefits of a college degree and what a college degree can mean for someone's life trajectory and, and how higher education is such a major driver of economic and social mobility for students. But that's really only true if the student is able to complete their program. Um, and so being able to cover costs, not just tuition costs, but all the other costs associated with being a student, having the supports and resources to get to the finish line, all of this plays into that. And so I think this bill is a recognition of, we have to address both the big existential challenges in higher ed. So naming a few, you know, declining state funding for public colleges, um, which is typically made worse during economic downturns, Pell Grant that currently covers the lowest share of college costs in the program's history, and of course the resulting debt burdens that follow. So addressing those big challenges while also looking at the individual needs of students to 
access a quality program and be able to get their degree. So there's certainly a huge ongoing role for states here. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, later and colleges, of course, but I work in federal policy. So from the federal, you know, federal government's perspective, they have a big role to play here. Um, certainly, again, not the only role, but this bill proposes for the first time a different role um, where there would be kind of this new statutory relationship directly between states and the federal government to fund higher ed. And I think that's that's kind of the key here to, to what this might do for students. Expand on that, if you will. The historical federal role has been on funding students through grants and other forms of financial aid. And support for colleges and universities has been the province of the states. And they've done so, as you suggested, to varying degrees and inconsistently over time. Could you explain for listeners how this bill would reshape the relationship between the feds and the states? It would be really the first time that the federal government would directly send money to states, not to students, um, to states to fund higher ed. And we and others for, for many years have called for kind of this umbrella of a new federal state funding partnership where, and there's various ways to kind of calibrate this, but you're both putting new federal money into directly funding students and funding tuition and costs, but you're also looking at it as an opportunity to incentivize states themselves to invest more in students and colleges um, and to hopefully reverse the trend of declining state funding. So there's various kind of levers you can pull and there's various uh, proposals which focus some, you know, as America's College Promise does, that focuses a lot more directly on covering tuition costs and covering, you know, replacing um, other forms of direct student aid. There's other proposals that are a little bit broader and more focused on addressing state funding, um, you know, overall. And some of that would be directed to student aid, but some of it would be more, more toward operational costs and just shoring up state budgets. So there's various ways you can approach this and various levers you can pull. And the House proposal is one kind of particular example. And we know the White House is focused a lot on community colleges. And, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. But this kind of idea of covering tuition through this Fed State Partnership is kind of one avenue that, that we can take. And we have, you know, our own proposal on what a Fed State Partnership should look like. Um, it is a little bit different than this, but I do think it's important to say this includes a lot of those key elements like a maintenance of effort. And it includes, you know, bringing states back to the funding table. And within the reconciliation context, it's a little bit tricky because there's kind of limitations built in there in terms of what kind of policy levers you can pull and what kind of policy priorities you can implement. Um, and also there's kind of a funding cliff built in when you when you create new programs through reconciliation legislation. But within those parameters, I think it will really move the needle. Um, and I think if you look kind of at the bill text and you see if, if that survives the reconciliation kind of process through the parliamentarian, um, you see there's a lot of other elements that the federal government is going to look to compel states to, to do to improve their higher ed systems. And that's kind of what the, the Fed State Partnership is looking at. It's saying, you know, we know states, you know, especially during downturns can be impeded from investing in higher ed. Um, you know, higher ed often serves as what we call a balance wheel for state budgets. Um, and, you know, states have balanced budget requirements. So, they need to fund other priorities on reduced revenue. You know, they have healthcare to fund and things like that. So they often will turn to higher ed, they cut higher ed, they rely on tuition to close the gap. Um, so this proposal actually includes, and this is kind of a first of its kind, would be a provision that would actually kind of automatically, hopefully come in and equip states to stabilize their funding across economic cycles. So again, it's a five-year window um, as, in, as proposed in the House bill, so it's a bit shorter. Um, but I think this issue of stabilizing state funding across economic cycles 
um, is one that a fed state partnership is uniquely equipped to address. Um, and so we're really happy to see that piece of it, along with all the other pieces around, um, you know, strengthening articulation and, and transfer pathways and kind of all the other things that, that can be compelled through this funding stream. It sounds like what you're saying is that if this legislation passes, it would be a foot in the door to creating this new structure. And while it might be narrower and shorter term than you'd like, it would at least establish a new approach that could be built on later and might be hard to undo since it can be hard to kill off a federal program once it's created. What are some of the other elements in this legislation that are noteworthy, particularly in suggesting a new kind of federal policymaking? Another big piece is the funding for completion and retention initiatives. So again, this is kind of a, a first of its kind federal proposal. Again, it's it's a lot less than what was originally proposed, um, but it's still, I think nine billion is, is still huge. So, you know, we were at zero. So from zero to nine billion is quite a leap. Um, but again, I think this really reflects where the research and the field has been pushing over the past few years in terms of we need to increase completion rates. Um, and if we're only thinking about getting someone in the door, there's a lot in between starting and finishing that we're not accounting for in terms of federal funding. Um, and so we need to be able to, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of evidence for programs that do work. A lot of colleges know what works, states know what work in many cases, but there just isn't always the money available to scale these programs. Um, and again, that's kind of where in the same way with the Fed State Funding Partnership, you want to harness the spending power of the federal government to scale up things that we that we know work. Um, so there's a, a nice set aside within the House proposal for evidence-based programs. Um, you know, one comes to mind, I think a lot of folks will be familiar with is CUNY ASAP. Um, kind of those comprehensive advising-based programs. Um, but there's also kind of funding for innovation and for, for states and colleges to try other things and see what might scale. And again, that's another, a nice balance I think they're trying to strike as they do with, with the free community college program between, you know, state, it's not just the federal hammer coming in. Um, I think it's this continued recognition that the state role is really important and states kind of have a, a really strong sense of what their students and what their residents need. Um, and it's not always the same. And so that that can be difficult to account for um, in legislating from the federal side. But also, I think there is a recognition of that across this bill, which is really important. The federal government has two key roles in, in higher ed policy, funding key priorities and more of an accountability role to try to ensure quality and to protect students. This administration and this legislation pretty clearly embraced the former role. But I'm curious what signals we see in this bill about the accountability role and that federal hammer you mentioned? I think that is kind of the big overarching question here that is not necessarily answered explicitly by this proposal. Um, I think you, there's a lot of different ways you can interpret the word accountability and what it means for higher ed. Um, I think certainly, you know, the administration has the negotiated rulemaking process and they've kind of signaled their commitment to you know, hopefully it seems like restore some of the previous accountability measures um, that, that were in place before, uh, you know, during the Obama administration. Um, there hasn't been, I think, as much reflection of that in their, in their legislating yet. I think some of that may have to do with the reconciliation um, parameters. I also think um, there are broader conversations that need to be had about, you know, we would, for example, like to see an expansion to allow, you know, all public colleges to be a part of some kind of federal state partnership um, and kind of thinking about community colleges play a really important role and thinking about um, how are we kind of, what are we incentivizing? Um, what are we funding? You know, how are we able to equip institutions to serve the students that they have, the students that they are currently serving, 
what kind of new students might come into the picture um, if this funding stream is opened up. But also just thinking again about, you know, we don't want to be leading students into something that isn't going to pay off for them. Um, and there are, I don't think there are currently enough you know, parameters in place. I think I probably am not speaking out of turn from Tikus' standpoint in saying that. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also important to be really careful. I don't want to conflate. Um, you know, I think we know that public colleges are doing a really good job on whole, and that includes, you know, two-year and four-year, and we need to make a lot more investments in those institutions. We've appropriately, I think, been focusing on the policy in this conversation, but we also, uh, newsflash here, have a good bit of politics in our world these days, and they're really swirling around this bill. There's a lot less money in here than a lot of colleges and student advocates surely wanted, and less than was in the administration's original American Families Plan on which the legislation is based. But it's a heck of a lot more than Republicans and it looks like a few key Senate Democrats think is prudent to spend. Without asking you to gaze into a crystal ball exactly, what do you see as the challenges on the path to this becoming law? Is it likely that the key elements remain, but the dollar amounts keep getting smaller? We are very optimistic that something will go through. And I think um, our goal at this point, you know, of course, we don't, we don't wanna negotiate against ourselves. It's the job of Congress to do that amongst themselves. Um, but I think we want to be realistic in saying, you know, we understand this may get cut further, but also say, you need to keep this kind of coordinated, comprehensive approach um, intact. You probably wouldn't love to see then something, which I suppose I could envision, which would just be, oh, we're just going to throw all this money back to Pell Grants or something. Your hope is that this sort of framework stays intact in a way that sort of creates some things or and that can, again, once they're in place, they can be adapted, but would be there. Absolutely. I think um, that is spot on. And I think building the opportunity to build new things into statute is a fairly rare one at this point. And missing that opportunity in all of these policy areas and priority areas for higher ed would be, would be a shame. Um, and so I think we would, you know, if we're talking about trade-offs, we would rather see you know, the bones of a federal state partnership built in that again, is like, we've created a new statutory relationship. It, you know, we may need to then go back and, and extend it, expand it, fund it, evaluate, you know, what it looks like and argue about all of that over time. But just building that in right now while we have this window is really important. This episode is sponsored by D2L Brightspace, the easy, flexible, and smart choice for your LMS. With D2L's powerful learning analytics, Top institutions create personalized experiences for every learner to deliver real results and can act in real time to get at-risk learners back on track. Discover how you can level up your LMS at www.d2l.com. That was Michelle Streeter, Associate Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Institute for College Access and Success. We're going to follow that think tank perspective with an institutional one by hearing from Ji Hang Lee, Senior Vice President at the Association of Community College Trustees, where he has tracked federal and state policy for 15 years. Ji Hang, welcome to The Key, and thanks for being here. Okay, well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. The Build Back 
better act would, if enacted, have an enormous impact on uh, your member institutions. What are the most significant elements of the legislation from your and their perspective? Well, obviously, uh, the the bill has uh, the America's College Promise, which is a free community college component, uh, which creates a federal state partnership around uh, universal access to community colleges. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about uh, that uh, for the uh, for the duration of this conversation, mm-hmm. but I would just highlight a couple of other things. Number one, it, it also includes additional resources for workforce training programs, for an example, on the ways and means portion. It includes TAA uh, money for community college training grants. It also included uh, $2 billion in the, in the labor portion for uh, community colleges uh, for workforce training. But you know, the one thing that we flagged for the administration and for Congress as part of the process of doing America's College Promise is that uh, currently, right now, if you receive a Pell Grant, um, you are taxed on the, uh, the portions of that Pell Grant that is used for uh, items that are not uh, tuition fees or direct costs uh, for a college. Uh, so all the things for cost of attendance were taxed but Ways and Means actually did include a provision to remove it from the gross income uh, for taxation purposes, which we're very excited about because one of the things we flagged is if you did a free community college piece uh, for all students uh, attending our community colleges and they received a Pell Grant, that means every single Pell Grant student at a community college would be paying taxes on the Pell Grant because they would have zero fees and zero tuition. So once we flagged that, I think there was a large resonance to uh, uh, resolving that situation and we're excited and we're hopeful that uh, it will make it into the finance uh, piece on the Senate side. I didn't know that, that is interesting. In terms of the tuition-free community college piece of the legislation, how do you see it most affecting your members and their students? Well, I think, you know, the the conversation around universal access to community colleges, I think, is the most paramount conversation that we've been having with our member institutions. Uh, being able to articulate to a family, to students, uh, that no matter your, your location, you're able to have, uh, have a tuition waiver and not have to pay anything for tuition and fees, that if you're low income, your Pell Grant will cover your cost of attendance, that you know, your living costs as a student. Uh, to us, that's a powerful message. Um, if you take a look at some of the enrollment declines, especially at community colleges, uh, we're seeing significant declines amongst males uh, and males of color uh, attending our institutions. Uh, but that's also being experienced across uh, the higher education spectrum. Uh, so we think the universal message is very, very important. Um, as it plays out in states, um, I think you know the you know this is going to be coming upon how the Department of Education works with each of the individual states uh, to negotiate how states participate and get into the system. And um, but we believe that with uh, America's College Promise and also the completion grant program, uh, that because uh, that program is tied to your participation in ACP, the, uh, America's College Promise, you can't participate unless you participate in the Promise Program. So uh, we believe that uh, will be a carrot, hopefully, for many states to participate. Um, And I do think that ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the vast majority of the states will participate um, in this program. And and I think our institutions will see an increase in uh, the number of students that are enrolling. Uh, And and I can't uh, stress enough about just how of a powerful message it is uh, for families 
uh, to just when you do a, you know, student fair, uh, like a college fair, and you can just go to a family and say, you have zero tuition or fees to come to our institution. It's not, oh, if you are a Paul Grant student. No, it's not uh, if you are, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, there is no caveats. This, the caveats are, you know, if you're more than half time and you're in a Title IV program, you get free tuition. Do you have a sense of kind of the the what is likely to happen to institutions in states that w- might decide not to opt in on this? And I mean, or how far down the road are you going right now in thinking about that? Um, well, I think the way that they bi- created the bill, you know, our institutions and states that don't participate won't be able to participate uh, in the program. Uh, so that's first and foremost. Um, you know, one of the conversations we are are having uh, uh, on the House uh, bill, and you know, we we might see something different once it goes to the Senate side, is we're having conversations with them uh, with them about the length of the program. The program is around for uh, is for five year authorization, uh, and we are concerned that it may take some time for uh, states to be able to ramp in and get into this program, uh, and it's you know it might take them a one or two years, and if it takes them one or two years, um, I guess the, especially on the two-year mark do they really just want to come in for three years and you know essentially have to stop the program so we are flagging this um and you know obviously chairman scott's team knows um uh, about this uh as an as, as a as an issue for us as a sector but uh we are hopeful with this uh, amount of resources. Um, the fact that many of our, some of our states have, have uh, you know, they can meet the match, uh, and that they also have promise programs that our institutions um, uh, will be able to participate, uh, and also the retention and completion grants will also serve as a, um, you know, an, an additional carrot. Uh, so to speak, uh, for further uh, participation amongst our states. Those of us who've been around for a while have seen cases in the past where colleges have been promised a lot through federal legislation and then have watched it be whittled down to a lot less. Happened with President Obama's American Graduation Initiative coming out of the Great Recession, where the original $12 billion became an important but much smaller $2 billion Labor Department program. We've got budget and other politics swirling around this legislation as well. What's your sense of what's ahead for the legislation and what's in it for your institutions in the weeks to come? Uh, (laughs) Well, obviously, you know, one of the things that occurs when you do these large pieces of legislation, especially when you have a razor thin margin on the Senate side during the reconciliation process, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, pushing, you know, squares into round holes. And, uh, you know, I think our expectation is that we will likely have something. Um, You know, we don't necessarily know if every component from workforce uh, to whether or not there's a component of means testing within America's College Promise. So once it moves over to the Senate side, there might be some trimming um, uh, that might, might occur. Um, I think for us as a, as a sector, we think, you know, a broadly, 
candidly, a, a universal message about every student's eligible for America's College Promise is a great message. Uh, and I'm remiss to say that, you know, I, I forgot, I neglected to mention about the, the, our DACA students are a major focal point as part of the uh, this piece of legislation and their eligibility for College Promise and they're also their eligibility for Pell Grants and student loans. We are hopeful that we get all, all the pieces um, as it as it migrates. Uh, obviously, um, you know, but you know, as a you know, as a betting man, I would expect some snipping around the corners. Um, uh, all the throughout the various pieces, um, you, you know, all you have to do is you know watch you know the Sunday news you know the news shows to know that, for example, three point five trillion dollar uh, allocation might be trimmed in itself, and if that's trimmed, then it has a ripple effect across all the various programs, um, and the, let alone the priorities in the Senate side. Um, so. We're, we are expecting some, um, but, you know, we are, we're hopeful that uh, the resources that were provided uh, remain solid um, as it moves through the legislative process and, uh, and sign into law. That was Ji-Hang Lee, Senior Vice President at the Association of Community College Trustees. For our last conversation today, I'm joined by Will Doyle, a professor of higher education at Vanderbilt University who focuses on the impact of higher education policy. This week, Will posted an in-depth thread on Twitter. Yes, I know that's a somewhat oxymoronic concept about the tuition-free community college provisions in the House legislation. Will, can you expand on your Twitter statement that the community college plan, quote, represents a huge change in how the federal government funds higher education? Mostly what the feds have done in the past is to focus on students, that they direct the funding for higher education through the students. And they do that primarily through the Pell Grant program. Um, and they also do it through the various ways in which they, they subsidize student loans. But here in, in this plan, for the first time at a very large scale, uh, the, the feds are proposing to directly fund institutions so that students can attend. And in fact, like, you know, for the states that decide to participate, dropping tuition to zero at community colleges for students. And that's much more how states have historically operated in their funding, correct? Is, is, is uh, enrollment based or, or something else, but money to institutions? Yeah, the basic division of responsibility has been that the states fund institutions and then the feds come in and step in and uh, provide additional funding so people can go to those institutions, can afford the tuition there. Right. And the, mod the modest exceptions to that are things like the strengthening institutions program and, and some of the support for uh, historically black institutions, et cetera. But those are just those are infinitesimal compared to what we're talking about here. Yeah, we're at an entirely different scale with this. Right. And some of the other elements that I think are, are probably worth talking about in that larger reframing, this compact or change in the relationship, does it also provide an opportunity for the federal government to ask more of the states in addition to giving them a lot more money? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's how you see the, the federal government um, establish its priorities in a bunch of other areas is by offering uh, funding for the states. But for this, when the states get that money, they have to abide by the, the federal rules. And so that's the way that uh, uh, Medicaid funding works. You know, healthcare for low-income people works. It's the way 
that uh, temporary assistance to needy family work, needy families work, so you, you know, what used to be called uh, welfare. Um, and it's the way that transportation, so these other so, huge policy areas, that's the way the federal government gets its priorities done. And it's how, isn't that how we have speed limits? That's the example that I think of is, yeah. is that uh, they've tied highway funds to uh, certain, certain rules of the road, right? Yep. So You have to abide by those federal safety regulations if you want those federal transportation funds. So what are the what are the key things in this legislation uh, that the federal government would be asking of the states? So what they're going to ask the states is to charge zero dollars at community colleges. So it's you know for students attending for basically the first couple of years, uh, those students will go to community college for free. And it's everybody, you know, all of the all students um, in those first couple of years uh, of attendance. No, you know, you know, it doesn't depend on age or, you know, uh, other types of things. And in particular, it doesn't depend on the student's income. Uh, in return for that, if the states, you know, uh, uh, drop that tuition down to zero, um, the, the federal government will give them an amount that's equal to let's, you know, sort of the average of community college tuition across the states. Uh, an event, but that's going to, it's actually like the, the feds will do 80% of that amount and the states have to match 20%. So zero tuition, feds give, it looks like it's something like $4,000 and the states have to provide about $1,000, call it. One of the other elements of it uh, is maintaining uh, something that we've called maintenance of effort, right? right? Which has been talked about in some other pieces of legislation, and if I'm remembering right, stretching back into my memory, was part of like the 2008-9 stimulus legislation was that states talk a little bit about what that means. Yeah. So the huge concern anytime the, the federal government steps in to fund something along with the states is that the states will be like, hey, thanks for this money. We're just going to cut our funding by the amount that you're giving us. So and then they can take that and you know devote it to something else. They can cut taxes or spend it in some other area. And so uh, any kind of federal state program, there's going to likely be some mechanism that's going to say, oh, no, the states have to spend what they were spending. And then this new money coming in is extra. It's on top of what the states were spending. So this, uh, uh, the bill does have a very similar uh, provision where it says, no, 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 like whatever you were spending before, you have to continue spending at uh, the, and interestingly, uh, for the like all the entire public system of higher education, not just the community colleges, and then but if you do that, then you can continue to get this federal money. And that is important, and it's been desired. Uh, something related to maintenance of effort has been desired by a lot of people in public higher education in response to, uh, and this is contested territory to some extent, but the, se the sense that states have not been uh, keeping up their obligations to support public higher education. And, and this, this would be a tool for the federal government to uh, try and put a floor and, and, and I presumably try and put, impose some upward pressure ultimately on, on that. Yeah, at the very least, so like, yeah, states cut higher education more than other categories in bad times, they increase it more than other categories in good times, um, but the, the cuts can be really severe. And so the in the last couple of recessions, the feds have actually stepped in to try and keep those, those cuts from being too severe in higher education with some success. 
And here, this is like a stable ongoing policy where like funding can't get below a certain level if the states are going to participate in this program. So you also, you did a bunch of analysis sort of looking and you had to make some assumptions in here about the, uh, the, the, um, the amount of tuition it would be and who would qualify in different states and which institutions would qualify because uh, there isn't a common definition of what a community college is across states, although there's obviously a definition in the legislation itself. And you looked at sort of how this would play out in a bunch of different states. Fine to talk about some specifics, but generally, what were the sort of conclusions you drew about the effect that this would have on states and their and students in those states? Yeah, as a like a person who kind of looks at state level policy for higher education, I can make an entire career just saying states are different, right? It's like no, states are different, right? Um, 50, right. 50, like, 50 so answers to that question. Right. <laughs> Try to think about how states are different, but when we look at this, so yeah, it looks like kind of like working it out, it's probably somewhere around 4,500, like the, 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 that, that key amount is probably somewhere around $4,500. And you could even just kind of simplify it a little bit and say like, the feds are probably going to spend about $4,000 per student attending community colleges and the states would have to match about a thousand. Per year or for the two years? Per year. Or, yeah. Per year. So everything yeah. on like a per student per year basis. So the, the feds are coming to the states and say, hey, we're going to give you $4,000 a student, but you have to give up that tuition revenue that you would collect from that student otherwise. And you have to give us that thousand, you have to contribute your thousand dollars to this. So then the states are faced with this deal. And there's a couple of different ways to think about it. So one is just like, is this going to overall be like more funding than the current system? Are they going to, are students going to receive more in a subsidy, like all of the money being spent on the students? And in a lot of states, that's true. And a, a solid majority of states, uh, that's absolutely true. So the students will can go to a community college for free. And when they get to that community college, they're like more money will be spent on them. So it's a, you know, it's a good deal for, for students in most states from that perspective. For the states, one way to think about this from the state perspective is, all right, I have, the state has to give up that tuition revenue and they have to put in their, their own money. Is that going to actually like end up costing the state more than what they're, they're currently doing? Is that, you know, if you compared to how much the state's spending right now, is that going to be more or less? So um, there's about 20 states where it's just perfectly clear that this is a really good deal. And it's states where a lot of students are attending community colleges and the community college tuition is low, much lower than that national average. So they can easily give up those revenues they've already got. They can take the federal money. They can, you know, pay their out of their own funds. And it's going to be like, you know, overall better deal for everybody. There's a set of states where it's a little bit of extra money, like, like less than $500 per student. The kind of thing where you could probably work that out in your existing budget without making huge sacrifices elsewhere. And then there's another set of states where if they want to maintain their current kind of overall level of spending or overall level of subsidies, better way to say it, like um, they're going to have to spend a lot more money. These are high tuition states, basically. Um, so they're going to give up all this tuition revenue. They're going to have to spend more of their own state funding, even just to match. Plus, then there's going to be this big gap where there used to be tuition, there's nothing. And so the state would have to, to fill that in if they wanted to. Could that conceivably lead states to opt out, as is the case in some of these other programs that you described? So 
Yeah, the most recent example we have is the example of Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act, under Obamacare, right? And that was intensely political. And so it's extreme. I mean, many things are political these days, but that was an intensely yes, political especially, process, yeah. right? So it's difficult to know what lessons to draw from that. But just really generally, the terms for Medicare expansion were more generous than the terms we're talking about here. The, the federal government was putting a lot more money on the table to fund healthcare for low-income people. The states would have had to put their own money in, but it's, it was much, much more generous terms. So here, the, it really does put a set of states in a fairly difficult position. They could just, I mean, and it's places, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, they don't spend hardly anything on their community college students. They could just kind of come up and start spending what everybody else does. That's like, you know, that is a reasonable thing to ask, but it's a big change from the way that they've done things in the past. We've talked about sort of the impact on the states and we've talked about the benefits for the students. What's your sense of the impact or, or the result of this for the institutions themselves? Is it, uh, you know, across the board, a good thing? So it falls out in those, those states that we were talking about. There's one set of institutions that are likely to see um, a reasonably substantial increase in their, their budgets as a result of this. It, they're going to get some additional revenue coming in um, from this federal and state match. It's going to be more than enough to make up the, the tuition revenues that, that they're losing. The set of institutions I really worry about are if the state agrees to participate, drops the tuition revenue, and then doesn't come in with extra money beyond the match. And so then you're, as you're just telling these places, you don't get the tuition revenue anymore. You're getting that, that federal funding plus our state match, and that's it. You know, figure it out from here. Uh, and so the reason, and the, the reason that that's additionally concerning is that if you drop the tuition to zero, more people are going to go to the community colleges. It's going to be new people who wouldn't have gone otherwise, and it's going to be people who would have gone to a four-year but are going to go to a two-year because it's so much cheaper. So at the same time that they're going to face increased enrollment, there's going to be real constraints on, on what they can do. They may be asked to do so with less money. Another situation that community colleges are used to finding themselves in. Yes, but, that is uh, not unusual for community but, colleges, uh, but it doesn't make it right. That conversation with Vanderbilt's Will Doyle completes today's episode about arguably one of the most important pieces of higher education legislation we've seen in a long time. Thanks to Will, Jihang Lee of the Association of Community College Trustees, and Michelle Streeter of the Institute for College Access and Success for their perspectives on the significance and the potential impact of this bill. Thanks also to D2L for its support of important conversations like these. You can follow Alexis Gravely's excellent coverage of this and other federal policies today and always on Inside Higher Ed, and the key will certainly return to these issues as the legislation progresses. The relationship between higher education and governments is constantly evolving, and while it may seem to be interesting and important mostly to lobbyists and, and policy wonks, how the government views and treats colleges and universities has implications for students, college employees, and even you English and engineering professors out there. Federal and state funding is a major part of the equation for how your colleges operate, whether they thrive financially or not, and in turn, how they support you and your students. So I'd encourage you to pay at least some attention to issues like the ones we discussed today. Thanks for listening. And until next week, I'm Doug Letterman, host of The Key. Stay well and stay safe.